Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for listening. My name is Soph Corcoran, and welcome to episode five of Don't Be a Stranger with my very special guest, um, Dale Michaels, who's with me today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How was your schedule this morning? Were you busy? Do you, what are uh, Mondays and Wednesdays look like for you? Or, uh, today is a Tuesday. I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Tuesday mornings mm-hmm. uh, always starts off with breakfast with my son, Aww. which is quite nice. And then he goes off to class, and I usually uh, go to the office for advising. Lots wow. of advising hours on mm-hmm. Tuesdays. So, yeah. Which, um, yeah, it's such a different thing than teaching class. Mm-hmm. But I really like it because I get to spend, you know, the one-to-one time with folks. Yeah. And it usually goes beyond, you know, what courses to think about taking and talks about future um, I guess we should kind of preface, I totally forgot to even mention it, um, what your role here is at Jefferson. Yeah, so I'm Associate Professor of Psychology, and uh, I go back a ways, actually. I taught on campus in 90 and 91, Wow. when it was a very, very different place. It was the textile school still, right? Yeah, it was textiles. Yeah, I hadn't even switched over to Philadelphia University. And um, and then I was at Temple University for, you know, uh, a period of time mm-hmm. from around 92 onwards. And then in 2002, um, uh, Dr. John Pierce, uh, mm-hmm. who's the director of psychology, he asked me to come and teach one class. Yeah. And so one class led to, how about maybe two classes Mm-hmm. And then two classes led to, would you think about being a visiting professor? Oh. And then visiting professor led to uh, the, the dean at that time saying, you know, we understand that you've got a private practice. Um, you know, would you be willing to organize your life in a way that you could, uh, you know, come here and be full-time faculty? Yeah. Which absolutely fit fit the bill for me. Yeah. Um, I actually had um, John Pierce. Um I think like an episode or two ago and we talked about you and um, I just wanted to know like how on your, I guess your opinion, not even opinion, but your side of like your friendship and like how that kind of like bubbled because he only had good things to say. Oh yeah. Well, I think the fun part uh, about our relationship Mm -hmm. is that we have a friendship that is in some ways organized by our different areas of psychology. Yeah. So, He's very much the scientist, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, his background is in what he would really think of as sort of the, the hard sciences. And so he looks at his side of psychology as the light side. Mm. And he calls my side of psychology the dark side. Oh, <laughs> negative connotation there a little bit. It's all in jest, mm-hmm. right? And it simply is, you know, his idea that when we think about uh, counseling and clinical areas, uh, they don't tend to carry with them the level of scientific method and experimentation that, that his side does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a long, long, multiple decades now, long uh, joke and bantering back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what was always nice, you know, for the students going back, you know, years is that they hear the banter going back and forth. And yet they also see us palling around together, yeah. <laughs> you know, and having meals together. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
you know, that's sort of that reconciliation of the sides that even though we can yeah. both look at each other and, mm. and uh, you know, think about being on somewhat of two sides of a continuum of psychology, yeah. you know, we, uh, we get along fabulously. Yeah, um, I just, I, um, in your class when you were like, you have to go and ask him about the orangutans. Oh, yeah, um, well, the chimpanzees. The chimpanzees, the, the chimpanzees yes, the excuse me, yeah. Yeah. And I did. I, I asked him that class. We even looked at each other. I was like, we need to figure this out. Oh, yeah. But I, I had no clue that he had met Jane Goodall uh, either. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, super sure. fascinating. Oh, he's got a rich history in yeah. psychology. Speaking of your history, I, I always like to ask this, um, just kind of like the steps that you've taken, just like trying to um, get to where you are today and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a history that is not a really a direct line. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was an undergraduate, yeah, I think I was more inclined to think in macro level. Mm-hmm. So I was, um, I was positioned in sociology. Yeah, and sometimes maneuvered into social psychology. Mm-hmm. And as an undergraduate, I really was, you know, um, mindful of ways that I could really influence the world and influence larger institutions. Totally. And so that that macro level really suited me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there were only these seeds being planted by especially my advisor at that point, uh, Dr. Robert Suggs. He would always say, you know, people, your peers and other people on campus, they think of you as just maybe having the demeanor of being a good therapist. You should think about you know, being a, a therapist or a counselor in your future. And I really didn't see it that way because yeah. I think I was too focused on, at that macro level. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I when I graduated, uh, I worked in the criminal justice system. My mom did too. Yeah, yeah right. With and DHS and everything. Y- yeah, and so I think for me, I began to spend maybe a bit more time actually involved at the micro level of working with uh, individuals Mm -hmm. and, you know, quite frankly, became disillusioned with the macro level in a way. Mm -hmm. But I felt pretty confident that, you know, it was difficult to make changes at that macro level, that I should be thinking about micro level. And so I totally changed my direction. And then um, it wasn't spur of the moment because the seeds were planted. Yeah. But I decided to go into Villanova's counseling program at that point. Great school. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, really set my sights then on working at that macro level mm-hmm. and thinking that I'd still have involvement, um, you know, with some macro level institutions or, or agencies or what have you. Yeah. But working with individuals and then if those individuals were able to experience change, then they could influence other individuals within their concentric circles and so it's that yeah. idea of dropping the pebble in the pond and the circles radiating out mm-hmm. so um yeah i think you know then i started in the criminal justice system in 86 and then by 91 i was being wooed to come out and work and start a private practice and so um yeah private practice started actually in 90 um and then i went full private practice in 91 at that point seems kind of like I know uh, we recently were chatting before and you were doing the radio station in 1981 I know you said you did college radio which is super cool so uh, it in 10 years later that's kind of like a very like quick like time <laughs> to get you know go from job to job to job was that difficult to adjust to at all or did no, you feel it was, it was like always by design yeah yeah um, I 
was always interested in just, um, you know, doing the kinds of things that could give me some pretty different experiences. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when I did college radio back in 81, I really had no mindset of, mm-hmm. you know, going in that direction and yeah. going ahead. Um, it was just something that I was asked to do. Yeah. And <laughs> something that I enjoyed because I was, I played music, I was really interested in the music world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, of course, this could always be up to debate, but the 80s were really cool. And yeah, there was such a such a variety of music mm-hmm. that even if you were a punk like I was, mm-hmm. you still would listen to electronic like music like Human League and Depeche Mode. And so at that point, frankly, mm-hmm. to be able to go into, you know, a college radio station that had an entire wall full of albums mm-hmm. because we spun, you know, uh, albums at that point. To go in there and just have all that music at my yeah. disposal mm-hmm. uh, and just to go from maybe what now would be considered what genre, one genre to another genre, mm-hmm. it was just loads of fun because yeah. we really had a pretty uh, significant following. So any given uh, you know four-hour slot, mm-hmm. you know we would have dozens of requests. Yeah, wow. So we were able to just go from... Um, you know, groups that were a little bit more hardcore to, you know, groups that were electronic and groups that were probably early versions of indie. And, yeah, you know, uh, back then, everybody listened to the same kind of variety, per se. Mm-hmm. So that was just an example of me being able to do something that was just loads and loads of fun. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like fun, you know, and with running a radio station with vinyl, I feel like would be like totally different than now just like making um like a playlist and just having you know being able to cue music like i'm really into cassettes i have um in the king of prussia mall i i work at the nordstrom i work at the e-bar which is like the coffee bar at the bottom i've been there for three years (laughs) but i on my break i always like to walk over to the rock shop and they have a wall of cassettes so sometimes you can buy like six so i have like born to run i have a bunch of springsteen i have elton john i think i have the newest one ren got for my birthday it's like phoebe bridgers on cassette oh that's great yeah i have a cassette player in my car it's like you know it's like lame it's like my weird little like quirk i have i guess Mm. but super into cassettes there was something really nice about having everything condensed into this little package Right. right yeah and so um yeah, we have cassette players at home. I think the final Walkman mm-hmm. died about two weeks ago. Really? But we still have uh, we still have either cassette players because I've got hundreds of cassettes. Mm-hmm. And ever since he was a, a young kid, my son has listened to The Police and Radiohead and so The Cure cool. and all those those old cassettes yeah. that I've had for you know since. Uh, yeah, probably started getting into the cassette buying probably around uh, the earlier 80s. Before that, I was just all vinyl. Yeah, like, I know, like, when I was growing up, I had a super, like, Springsteen mom, so it wasn't really the cure, like, Radiohead. It was kind of more like Dave Matthews Band, a lot of, um, like, old kind of, like, yeah, just kind of like Springsteen Matthews, and more if I could remember. But um, very kind of that indie side of music still but i think the older that i've gotten it's just been like i love looking into like radiohead now i think 
um, that OK Computer is one of my favorite oh, albums of classic. all time. Yeah. Did you go to a lot of concerts while you were in college? Even going into like yeah, professional. I I did. Um, although you know, for example, some of those groups like Radiohead, they didn't come around until. I'm trying to think. I went to Radiohead probably. 92 or 93 and that was when they were an opening band mm-hmm. um, I'm going to tap into my visual memory here uh, they opened f- at the Trocadero I've played there 93 before. for Belly that's who and probably nobody even knows yeah, I don't know Belly. who Belly is yeah. right and they played um, you know they played some music obviously from their first album mm-hmm. and then they even threw in songs that were for the upcoming album the bends which is also yeah. a terrific album but yeah i i had um i got really into going to you know uh some of the different music scenes even before i was probably old enough actually yeah i was, yeah. I was too young to go into some of those places mm. but i had older friends and so i i really got to see some great groups in those early years, like yeah. uh, the Ramones, the Talking Heads. So cool. Uh, I saw the police when they first came around for their first tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was only 13. I just realized wow. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to see some of those uh, some of those great groups when they were first starting out. Yeah, I love the venues in the city. You said the Trocadero. My dad does comedy like on and off. He did it a lot when I was younger, and I used to open for him. Really? So I played on the Trocadero stage. Yeah, I did a lot of like songwriting in high school i still kind of dabble in it a little bit but i really prefer like i write a lot of like scripts now and just like screenplays rather than writing music but i did i played the trocadero i opened for my dad i was like probably 14 years old and this That's a pretty big venue it's very yeah i stood on the stage and everything and like played my little yeah. song yeah my dad he um always like when i was younger was like do you want to just come and open and play a couple songs i think i did it like two <laughs> or three times yeah Oh, but that's great. Yeah, I love the venues in the city. Like, we go to, um, I think, the Fillmore a lot in yeah. Fishtown, and then yeah. Franklin Music Hall. I think I've been there, like, probably, like, four times in the last year. Yeah. I think that's what the city is, like, is made for, is for music, you know? Yeah, some of them have, uh, apparently, the Drocadero is closed. It, yeah, it did Which last makes me year. quite sad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Boot and Saddle was closed, which I thought was a nice little venue. Yeah. Yeah, some of those places I really struggled you know, from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a time where, you know, Philadelphia was obviously one of those stops mm-hmm. that groups that maybe were on the edge or on the re- the cusp of, you know, making it big. You yeah. know, they would come in and they would make sure that they would, you know, play the Philly area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of those kinds of things where you, before the internet, Mm-hmm. You really had to just go by word of mouth, and if you yeah. if somebody said something about a particular group, mm-hmm. you would just have to pay attention and look at the newspaper, literally read the newspaper, yeah. to see when they might be coming in. Yeah, because I think with like now, I I use um I think that Ticketmaster is a scam. I think they steal from people, which is the yeah. bad thing about the internet getting involved. Um, cause I know when I was gr- like, when I was super young, whenever we wanted to go to a concert, I tried to buy them online and my mom like would make us like drive to the venue and like oh, wait sure. in line and get yeah. the tickets. Cause those fees are an absolute disgrace, but I will say I'm very grateful that if even like on Spotify, if you listen to a certain musician amount of times, it'll be like, Oh, this musician is playing at blah, blah, blah at the Fillmore right, at the right. music hall. So yeah, I think. I will say that it, that has been an advantage because I do not like pay attention at all. And when I'm when like 
when reading so it's i would probably like look over and be like oh yeah cool like april 15th whatever and then i would totally the sec- the 16th would happen i'd be like oh, missed it again i know i missed uh there's a group that i love in fact mm-hmm. they're one of my favorite all-time groups sunny day real estate wow and when they reformed and they did a, a 18 yeah you know, club tour mm-hmm. in 2009 i guess that was I got to see them. And it was oh, just that's crazy! And then uh, you know, I've been um, I've been mourning, th- you know, their their lack of existence again. And I just found out they were on tour, and I missed them. They came to Philadelphia oh, in the no. fall. So you do have to keep up on it because otherwise, yeah, something can sort of come and go really quickly, and you miss out on it. Yeah, I'm like a really big like the social media I use the most is Twitter. Well, not really. I don't like it as much anymore um, because of like. Elon Musk buying it 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 kind of took the thrill away a little bit but I Twitter is like my go-to like what I search for all the time so if there's like an account where it's like updates on something and I'll I'll be like a band or whatever so they post all the tours because I I'm like I feel like this year I'm so on like a different like level of paying attention besides like my school and then like the radio station my job that it's like I don't know when anything is happening so yeah i i think that's probably what happened for me that i'm mm-hmm. just uh there's been so much going on yeah that i just didn't commit to sitting down and mm-hmm. scrolling through union transfer or johnny Such brothers and thing. seeing yeah. all right who do they have coming up mm-hmm. and i just missed it i just yeah. missed them um yeah, it's such it's such a shame because it's like I wish that I could just have like a huge like poster board somewhere because <laughs> it's like I don't drive anywhere where there's billboards. But if there's like a huge billboard where it was like, oh, like Phoebe Bridgers is at the man, I'd probably be like, oh, OK, I need to go get tickets for that. Um, I know my when I was in high school, my favorite band was Panic at the Disco. I was like, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's my mom's favorite band. And um their last they they disbanded now they're not a band right, anymore yeah. and um they had their last show on my brother's 18th birthday and my mom wanted to go so bad we he was my brother wanted to go i was like oh yeah i'll come whatever it happened and we had no idea Ugh. it was such a shame yeah my, and then i texted my mom and i was like dude panic at the disco is like not a band anymore and she sent me like a bunch of crying emojis oh, yeah. yeah so i was like really wish that was like that's a concert i think not that i'm like an, an avid fan now but for the nostalgia i think it would Oh, right. And when, you know, there are some of those groups Mm -hmm. that if you know that they do wonderfully live, like they have a great reputation. Oh, they were great. Yeah. Yeah, I saw him in Kinky Boots, too. So you just want to you just want to be able to Mm -hmm. have that moment to be Mm -hmm. able to see them. Yeah. I used to be like um, like I with concerts and everything. And even like I used to be really like Broadway shows, too. I would follow that to like a T. Like I. Growing up, um, I when I was going to the eighth grade, or I was in eighth grade, I made my grandmom like drive to New York and get tickets for Dear Evan Hansen <laughs> and Kinky Boots. I was like, we have, I was such a brat, but she was like, okay, since you're graduating eighth grade, like yeah, sure. Aww. But yeah, they they've always been really good to me. But um, I think that live music is dying a little bit, so I think that's why it's and even theater, a hundred percent. Not that I'm like like actively in theater. Right. But I, I do think that theater is something that is at post-pandemic, not even pre, is something that's falling apart. Yeah, right. It's really, really sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for some of the smaller venues, you know, they they struggled so much. Yeah. That, you know, there was just no way they could they maintain themselves. And I hope that comes back because, you know, there was some movement um, pre-pandemic for some groups. Mm-hmm. 
wanting to um, play small venues. Yeah. Even though they knew that they would probably leave a number of dissatisfied fans, you know, but playing some small venues just to sort of relive some of that experience. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, one of the the later, uh, you know, uh, events at Boone Saddle was uh, a group called Joy Formidable mm-hmm. that, you know, was in town. So they had had a decade under their belt. And because they came to town and, you know, played at Kung Fu Necktie and then at Johnny Brenda's, and they really got rooted here in these small venues. Yeah. And, then, you know, then it became, uh, eventually it became one of the large arenas downtown with Foo Fighters because they were yeah. one of Dave Grohl's favorite bands. You know, they came back and they played um, Boot and Saddle and they had these this really nice opportunity for those of us that were there 10 years ago yeah. to come in and just hang out with them. Oh, that's so cool. Very, very small room. So right? cool. They got, you know, they played. It was really nice and intimate. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and in talking to them, I mean, one of the reasons they wanted to do it was not just to sort of give back to us that mm-hmm. were part of that early trend, but just because they really enjoyed it and they miss yeah. it, right? Yeah. So I know groups were starting to come, sort of, sort of curve back into the direction of smaller venues before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, not really music themed, but um, I really like when, um, like even like especially bands like that will just sit and like talk to the audience. Oh, yeah. Like we went to me, Ren, and Kate went to go to the Always Sunny live podcast um, in September of last year, and we were in row F in the at the Mets. So we were really really close. It was it was one of the best nights oh, of my life. It was great. so much fun. Um, they it was um, Charlie Day, Rob McElhenney, and then Glenn Howerton and Meg, their producer. They talked to, like, people. Like, it was just, like, we were hanging out. It was such... And even though the Met is kind of, like, a bigger venue, like, it was very, very, like, right. personal and intimate. And um, we almost got picked to ask them a question, but the people next to us were from Britain. Uh. So, they, of course, they were going to pick the British people over. <laughs> like, we were like, we're from Philadelphia. We're from Philadelphia. Like, of right. course, they're going to pick, yeah, like, they, the British people. because yeah, they always have the accent, too. They did, and they, but they got cut out of it. <laughs> so, it's like, I don't care. I, I wouldn't have gotten cut, but whatever. But right. um, yeah. it was just – I, I also used to be really into this band, like, do a lot of work with them. They were called the Rex, and they would play – um, just like the film, but not the Fillmore. I forget which one it was. It was like the something stage at the Fillmore. It's a smaller stage. Mm-hmm. They yeah. would just like have people like on stage and like s- like surf and like stage dive. It was like like oh, those are right. the that was pre pandemic though. But I think it's just like moments like that where you your leg music is still alive. But then you go to a concert and then everybody is just like on their cell phone and it's like oh, it's just terrible. Yeah, I, I'm I I used to kind of. I won't lie, I would record concerts, but, like, probably, like, middle school. Like, now I'm sure. kind of just, because you're, you know, whatever, you want out all your little friends to oh, see sure, that you're the Panic yeah. at the Disco concert. But me and Rin, over the summer, um, woke up at 3 a.m. to drive to Asbury Park, which was at the Stone Pony. We saw yep. Phoebe Bridgers. We got in line at 6 in the morning, um, and we got front row. And I made Vrin record everything. I was like, sorry. Like, she wasn't into Phoebe Bridgers as much then, but I was like, you got to record this for me. Because I was like, I just need to, like, be with Phoebe Bridgers right now. It was such a cool show. That stage is incredible. It's funny you mention that. I've never been there. Mm-hmm. But actually, and it might be Saturday Real Estate, somebody, this just a few weeks ago I saw, mm-hmm. is swinging back around east. And that's the only place in the east they're playing 
besides Boston, Boston's too far. Yeah. Yeah, the Stone Pony. It is. It is. It was my first time there. Um, My grandma had gone a lot because it used to be the bowling alley, so they would do a lot of concerts at it was like Asbury Lanes or something. But um, they have the Summer Siege. We're going back. Me, Ren, and Kate are going back to see like Rainbow Kitten Surprise with Kate. That's like their favorite band, and. we're like really excited, and me and Ren feel like we know the area now since we went to that one of concert. Course, of course, and it, yeah. like Asbury Park is such a nice place. I totally recommend seeing a show there. I, like I, I, I will openly say it's like my favorite venue. It was such, and it's right on the beach. Oh, that's not yeah, praise. we like threw our stuff down and then went to go on the beach. Yeah, that's high yeah, praise. Yeah, it was super super cool. Yeah. Um, I just also wanted to ask you, I guess. Um, Sorry, we were just so deep in conversation. I don't even like need any of my questions. <laughs> um, do you have any like current like research interests right now? Like any, not even anything like related to the field. Just like anything that you're just like so like into and like curious about right now. Yeah, I'm sort of in the maybe the beginning stages of thinking about some things. Where so I don't, I don't do research mm-hmm. in the same ways that some of the other individuals do here because. My commitment is to practice. Yeah. So, um, you know, technically I'm on a practice contract. Mm. And so I maintain my practice. Yeah. You know, so for years um, my interest has been Mm trauma-oriented because that's where I really began to pay attention to thinking about counseling differently, thinking about human experience differently, Yeah. you know. I think one of the things that's been a concern for me is Mm -hmm. that we have really fallen away from being able to um, do perspective taking. Yeah. The idea of being able to have a conversation with somebody Mm -hmm. that might think differently than us, might behave differently than us. Yeah. And, you know, have a conversation that was more than just civil, actually was able to maintain even a certain amount of collegiality mm. or a certain amount of friendship. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that concerns me is that uh, currently in both the political realm and the civic realm, mm. there really has become such polarization. Um, you know, the phrase they often use is that we've become so tribal. Mm-hmm. I think from a psychological standpoint, you know, we have just lost not only the ability, but even the interest in perspective taking in a way Mm -hmm. that can maintain uh, democratic thinking, Mm -hmm. can maintain, you know, a community of people that are diverse and different. And so uh, that's one area that I've realized I really want to take a bit more of of a deep dive because... The politicians, um, or I should say the political pundits, are mm-hmm. beginning to think about it. So individuals like Ezra Klein, who's yeah. really beginning to think about sort of the mechanisms behind this mm-hmm. polarization yeah. and this inability to get along. Um, but I don't think there's been enough of a voice in psychology currently yeah. that has come forward and said, okay, this is really critical Mm-hmm. Um, and not only just for the public forum, but this is yeah. this is critical for us as we try to find our way to the future. Totally, because you know American politics is one thing. Yeah, you know it, it's uh, there are political you know stress 
mm-hmm. uh, events that are going on in a lot of co- countries right now. Yeah. And because of climate change and other things that are impending, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have to figure out how to manage these different belief systems in a way that we can frankly survive. Yeah, and it's it's weird that you say that because um, I was going to say my little like research thing I've been really into is like I think I would go as far to say is like I'm like addicted to researching like QAnon. There yeah. is just something about that that is so fascinating to me because I think like I want to understand it and how it makes sense so bad, but I just can't wrap my head around it because it's such these extreme beliefs. Right. And I I will read like like Ren will and Kate will both get mad at me because it's all I talk about. I'm in the middle of watching the HBO series about it, and it's been something I've been into for like the last three months because it's just like I'll go on the Fox News and I'll read their like sections, and it's just like crazier. I'll go on Twitter, I'll get like into these like Bitcoin people, and it's I'm just it's so fascinating how even just like conservatives on that like that spectrum don't even want anything to do with QAnon, and then that is something that I think on the political scale is just so fascinating. Yeah, I think that um, you even look at an exercise like mm-hmm. uh, birds aren't real, right? Yeah. Where it's, you know, sort of a mockery of QAnon. Mm-hmm. You look at, epi- you know, sort of, you know, episodes where somebody comes up with an idea mm-hmm. and they think, let's see if we can pull this off, that we yeah. can start a conspiracy, and that some people become seriously invested in it, mm-hmm. not realizing that there's a, a wink wink and a nod nod like yeah. hey, this is just a joke right mm-hmm. um i think it it really shows that um individuals you know some individuals are predisposed yeah you know to these ideas and it is certainly something where i think back to when i was younger and in practice and i worked uh with some individuals and families mm-hmm. that or sort of, you know, transitioned out of cults. Wow. Um, and so there is, um, there's sort of this connection between individual psychology and social psychology mm-hmm. where um, people really are susceptible to something mm-hmm. like QAnon. Yeah. Right? And then they become so cognitively anchored into it mm-hmm. that they can't hear and observe anything that would be contrary to it. Yeah, it is so fascinating. And it's one of my, I'm very, um, I guess which is, it's good that I'm in psychology. I'm very into like studying people right. and different groups of people. And that I think out of all of the different uh, ways I analyze people, it's just something about those that are in those like extreme far right communities that I'm just so fascinated in. Because mm-hmm. it's, because you're right, it is. It's like a certain mindset you have to be in to fall into something like that. And I don't know. I just, I just want to get it like so bad, you know. And I'm just like, it's constantly like an itch that I can't scratch. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, I think at some point you'll find your way into social psychology. Yeah. Because some of that work is where you'll not only hear about the individual psychology that is susceptible mm-hmm. to these kinds of uh, ideas and beliefs yeah. and belief systems, but also individuals that use those mechanisms mm-hmm. and the principles that they use to sort of pull people in, Yeah, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about its most extreme form, whether it's uh, Waco and David Koresh or, yeah. you know, Jim Jones, who you know, has people by the hundreds, mm-hmm. you know, 
that are involved in a mass suicide, obviously those individuals were, you know, tapping into some psychological mechanism that they knew how to operate with it to begin to pull those kind of predisposed people in. Yeah, and I think it it has to do with um, vulnerability and Mm -hmm. preying on those who have less than those that are fortunate. Like, I'm really into um, this guy. Well, not anymore. He got, like, canceled for, like, being a creep. But uh, he ran this YouTube channel called All Gas, No Breaks. And he would go to these, like, extreme, like, conferences. And he had this um, HBO, um, uh, like, I guess documentary about the insurrection. And he interviewed this family. And the kids weren't in school because of... um, they had to wear masks if they went to school, so the kids weren't in school. Sure. And then um, the insurrection happened, and they talked to the family after the insurrection. And the kids were like, I like the, the kids who were like in the beginning before the insurrection that were like, I, you know, you know, like oh whatever, all that rhetoric. Afterwards, were like, I hate my parents for what they've done to me. And there was a span of five months. It was like I think it was literally September. And then they, that's when their interview insurrection was in January. They went back in March. And it was like over that six-month span that these kids went from following their parents to seeing that and then hating them. Right. It's very just like f- you're just preying on people. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I just I, – I always feel like crazy when I talk about it. But – and it's like it's definitely something I would – like I want to have like my own like podcast about it and then yeah. teach like a class on it. It's my other goal to goal is just like – I don't even know if that could possibly even be a class I could teach, but I saw somebody um, at my job, and I work in King of Prussia, which is right in the epicenter of everywhere, and the lady had a QAnon sticker on her car, and I was like, this is a sign I need to, like, genuinely, like, take this as, like, a research interest. Yeah. Well, absolutely, because it is a real phenomenon, right? Totally, yeah. And when we think about uh, this predisposition or susceptibility Mm -hmm. and then individuals that you know, uh, in some way, shape, or form, take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. It's an equal opportunity employer because it can be individuals that are affiliated with far-right political thinking, mm-hmm. uh, far-left political thinking, mm-hmm. really strange uh, libertarian ideas. Yeah, so circle, not a line. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, you know, what happens is it becomes really a, a psychological social psychological phenomena yeah that basically will look for individuals regardless mm-hmm. you know of political or even religious ideas yeah and decide um, to create some kind of power differential yeah uh, to be able to organize individuals as followers mm-hmm. um, and it is something that I think has become so troubling yeah because for those of us that are, you know, uh, paying attention to politics to the degree that it influences us, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is a psychological phenomenon that we think just defies reason. Yeah. Because, because of that uh, sort of cognitive mm-hmm. uh, rigidity, you, you naturally want to engage with them, mm-hmm. whether it's because you're, you're frustrated and you want to argue yeah. or because you're, you're despairing for them. And you want to save them, especially if they're family members or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't work. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And it's really know? scary to see that bleeding, like those extreme politics bleeding into like actual legislation. Like mm-hmm. um, I'm in psych of trauma right now and we just learned, not, I guess not learned, but discussed about the LGBTQ issues. And like since last year, the legislation has doubled. And I think that is so absurd. It's 421 oh, yeah. laws. Yeah, it's, it, it's antithetical to our field, too. Yeah. Even though very often 
you know, that legislation is influencing, mm-hmm. you know, the medical field, the counseling field, yeah. providing individuals the rights to uh, reject working with somebody or treating yeah. them. Uh, all those things are, you know, they're, uh, they're against the ethics of our fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're against our professional ethics, and yet we've not really heard enough of an outcry from the field to yeah. be able to push back against those kinds of things. Yeah, and I'd like to think about it like this, um, kind of with going to the school and being in this area, it's like a bubble. So not like, I, I'm i not worried about any legislation directly affecting me and mm-hmm. my field, but then I think about those in um, more southern states and down in Florida, and I think that's what's scary about it is because you're right, nobody in the counseling and psychology field is really going, well, is this really wrong? You know, because it's kind of just nothing i think people just can't really believe yet that it's really going on yeah yeah Yeah. and i think the other part of it too is that um we've come to a time where we probably have to revisit what it means to be uh, a lobbying force Mm -hmm. because you know it's become a bad word in a lot of circles yeah um, however, if you think about counseling practice or, or the, the realm of psychology or mm-hmm. social work or, you know, marriage and family um, therapists, those groups are ones that, you know, they, they all have a commitment to advocacy. Yeah. And yet, unfortunately, advocacy these days probably means we have to go beyond just, you know, um, at times publishing some kind of article mm-hmm. or, you know, rallying in a, in a group uh, on p- some particular day. Yeah. probably means that there has to be better organization to let politicians know that, yeah. you know, um, this is an entity that says yeah. these laws are so contrary to mm-hmm. our belief systems, yeah. you know, as helpers that, you know, we can maybe begin to push back. Mm-hmm. And that means lobbying efforts and... Again, that becomes a stressor for people when they think about being lobbyers. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's what the next steps would be, would just be lobbying? I think it has to be. Yeah. One of my early, early jobs out of college, arguably even the first, was with a political lobbying group. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there are these different realms. There's a hierarchy of Mm -hmm. how much influence, you know, you as an individual have, but you realize that you're putting out efforts uh, so that at some point somebody mm-hmm. at the top of that hierarchy has maybe some of the monies or influence to be able to get a seat at the table yeah, and have conversations with individuals where they can at least relay a message that says, hey, listen, right now you need to listen to me, yeah, listen to us because mm-hmm. we're going to organize to have an impact. Yeah. And so I think... Um, you know, the group that I was, you know, working with was, mm-hmm. at that time, uh, it was a pressing issue. It was working with, you know, nuclear proliferation. Wow. Um, but we really did rely on, mm-hmm. you know, the lobbying efforts for some of those individuals at the top of the hierarchy to be yeah. able to get, whether it was a dinner in a particular evening mm-hmm. with politicians or, you know, other kinds of meetings to be able to say, hey, we can, we can print you know, material, we can have people knocking on doors, you know, we can find advertising space, listen to us. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think at some point, you know, the helping professions are going to have to think about 
uh, being able to take that tactic. Yeah. Did you like working in politics compared to just like doing counseling? I didn't really like it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because it was was a good learning experience. Yeah. Because it was at that point Mm -hmm. really a lesson in compromise. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the compromises were so arbitrary. Yeah. That we would sit down and basically you would have something you believed in pretty, you know, pretty fervently. And you were realizing that you had to give up on that Mm -hmm. because you had to be able to give in to some other, um, some other interests, you know, of the other side. Yeah. Uh, What was noteworthy would be that we would be able to spend time with, maybe our peers in on the other side mm-hmm. and have really good conversations. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, and we knew that the people that were above us were going out and having dinners or having meetings <laughs> or whatever and really, you know, doing some kind of negotiating and compromising. Yeah. Um, but it was difficult because sometimes, you know, you would uh, at the beginning of a day feel pretty empowered about a particular yeah. belief. Um, but then, you know, at the end of the day, realize that you, you the compromise, you know, mm-hmm. might be a pretty, uh, pretty good kick in the shins. Yeah. Um, now, what that meant is you learned not to be such an idealist in practice. Yeah, right? definitely. So really good lessons. But it, mm-hmm. I think for me, it was um, it had run its course when I just felt that kind of frustration. Yeah. Where again, part mm-hmm. of this was that lesson in the macro level yeah where there's only going to be so much influence you can do at that macro level yeah but would you even say that like politics and counseling kind of go hand in hand because you have to work on that compromise well you have to yeah Yeah. no doubt about it and i think also you know in um you know in certain approaches Mm -hmm. you know you are really needing to be politically minded yeah because you have to maintain some commitment to advocacy Mm-hmm. for individuals that are suffering yep. um, and whether it is because there aren't enough resources mm-hmm. to really meet the needs yeah. of individuals that have mental health difficulties or whether it's because there are institutionalized um, problems mm-hmm. that perpetuate whether it's trauma mm-hmm. or you know you know mental health vulnerabilities at some level, you mm-hmm. really have to be thinking about what you're going to be doing when you're thinking about your political self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because, um, you know, society plays a role in contributing to mental health difficulties. Yeah. And so if you think of yourself and your political self, Mm-hmm. as having some ability to influence society, yeah. then that's where you're seeing the connectivity of these different things. Yeah, like my um, my grandmom and my aunt both work at the Coatesville VI. Mm-hmm. Um, as my grandmom does a lot more social work and my aunt does a lot more like intake and counseling. And um, she, I know that they've even talked about like how difficult that the political system has affected the vets that are in there. Oh, yeah. Because not only of that social aspect, but just even on like how the the stigma that's been created against those who have served, you know, Absolutely. yeah, it's really fascinating. That's, I think another thing I would really love to, you know, focus on is the, how like politics just affect every single thing in this Absolutely. world. And yeah. I, yeah. And I, and I think 
it's gotten worse in the last um, few years, especially with that issue of not being able to separate church and state. And I, I totally think that would be something I could like really want to look into in the future. Yeah, because politics is helping, you know, push along agendas yeah. that make decisions about our educational systems, mm-hmm. our economic, you know, systems, um, you know, all levels of you know, society and community. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that then becomes that intersection again is that if you think about an individual mm-hmm. and their mental health yeah. and aspects of their identity that could be threatened by social, um, you know, social decisions. Yeah. And, you know, the degree to which a person doesn't feel as they can even travel to certain places because yeah. they're worried that, you know, something bad might happen to them. Mm-hmm. And not just incidentally any longer because of maybe somebody in the crowd that, you know, doesn't like them in their group. But even yeah. if it's now becomes part of legislation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where you know, we have to be thinking mm-hmm. about these remarkable social influences on the psychology of exactly. our clients and, and our friends. Yeah. So. I, um, I'm really also into, like, media. Like, I write, like, a bunch of short films and stuff. I watch, like, a lot of television. So even just, like, the, you know, the effects that politics have had on, like, TV now is absurd, like, with the different news channels and everything like that. Mm, yeah. But right now I'm watching um, Veep. On HBO, yeah. yeah, really good show. So that kind of makes me um, feel like empathy for people in charge. <laughs> but then I think about the like the state of our world, and I'm like scared. Yeah. yeah. Are you watching anything good right now? Binging at all? So I have a long history of being an escapist <laughs> with what I watch. Yeah. So for example, mm-hmm. I don't watch, and I never have watched shows that are politically oriented. Yeah. I think I've heard so many people say wonderful things about Veep, but yeah. I, yeah, because I was at one point in the world. Of yeah. <laughs> you know, same with sometimes people wonder, you know, like if I must really like shows about therapists or about, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything to do with them. Yeah. Um, so I am, you know, I'm pretty much an escape. Uh, artists, so I watch a lot of science fiction. So really, yeah. So Thursday nights at our house um, are pretty much committed to making sure that we're going to be able to sit down mm-hmm. and watch whatever Star Trek episode really? happens to be going on at this point. Right, yeah. right now it's Picard season three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so th- I, I'll watch those kind of shows. Um, my wife and I like watching. You know, some of the. Um, sort of the crime dramas, yeah. you know, those procedural shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other than that, I tend to watch um, a fair bit of Premier League uh, football, soccer. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm an avid fan with that, uh, F1 racing, mm-hmm. you know, baseball. So, I'll, yeah, I'll get caught up into the sports world too. Yeah, see, I, I, that's like not anything that I've ever like fallen into, but I yeah. um, I watched um, Welcome to Freckham. Which was the oh, show with Ryan yeah. Reynolds and yeah, um, yeah. Rob McElhenney. Like, that, I, that's something I think that was really cool that they just like built the team from the ground up. Instead of that show focusing on Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, they focused it on the team. And yeah. I think that's really, really important that they did that. Well, and that's a, that's a slice of life over in UK, mm-hmm. um, you know, Wales and Ireland, yeah. Scotland and England and Northern Ireland. 
where when you have you know small communities their life is organized around the football team yeah and everybody is there because i'm mm-hmm. thinking back this was been uh, 2001 i actually my friend uh my friend from australia he flew into manchester i flew over to manchester and we only took about two weeks driving around ireland yeah and it was great when there would ever be a game on mm-hmm. there was nobody out in the streets really no nobody not a single person yeah because they were either if it was home a home match they were there mm-hmm. or they were in the pub right <laughs> i mean you could drive and not see a single car driving that's so fascinating because the entire community is organized around these kinds of things mm-hmm. and so yeah you look at wrexham and you know what they're thinking about is not just you know being able to take a team that's low division and mm-hmm. taking it up, yeah. but it's revitalizing the entire community. Yeah, you know, so yeah, those kinds of things. Uh, I really I, I enjoy those kind of shows. Yeah, and then I also like you know some of these shows like Stranger Things. Yeah, or, I never finished you know, that. If you show me a good, a really good horror, mm-hmm. it's not too campy. I like those <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah, you know. So yeah, escapist kind of stuff. Yeah, see, I'm like, I'm a, like, I'm like crazy. I've seen like so many different TV shows. Um, I've seen, like, I watched a whole show my senior year of high school about fantasy football. Like, I've never. It had seven <laughs> seasons, and I sat and I watched every single season. But yeah, I'm like a dork. Was it documentary a, style? About no, this? no, it, it was, was it was an FX show. It was called The League. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was okay. so. It was about. The guy who was the um, no, no, but he's like blacklisted because he lied about being involved in nine eleven. If that gives a little summary oh, of what that show could gotcha. possibly be about gotcha. at all, but yeah, um, I've I've seen like so much stuff, but I wouldn't even say that I'm even an escapist. Like I really, I wanted to get around to watching it. Um, the Jason Siegel show about the like the therapist drinking. I really wanted to watch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I might watch that one. There have been enough people that have asked me to at least check it out. Yeah, I mean, I probably won't see it in its in its entirety, but mm-hmm. I'll probably still check it out because yeah. sometimes people will ask me to look at something mm-hmm. and then tell them how realistic is that. Um, you know, so shows like years ago there was a show called Intervention. Mm-hmm. You know, on A and E. I think I might have seen a couple episodes yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. It, so yeah, shows like that. Mm-hmm. I might look at them for a little bit, but yeah. not too much because it's like coming home from work and going to work. Yeah. See, I love like reality TV. Like they have on A and E. Like we, um, me, Red, and Kate. It's like the only two people I hang up with. It sounds like, but we'd watch. Um, it, because me and Brynn are roommates and Kate lives across the hall, so we watch a lot of stuff together. Um, we just watched um, Survivor. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So that is my <laughs> one reality TV guilty really? pleasure. It's so good. I really enjoy Survivor. Yeah. Um, we because, watch, yeah. Well, that's like when I grew up in, as a kid in rural, you know, rural mm-hmm. PA. Yeah. You know, we we did things where, you know, it's like how far can you walk with this little bit of food? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, oh, I, yeah. I didn't see the first season of Survivor. Yeah. The second season, from that point on, I've seen every season yeah, except we, for the last one yet. I'm waiting to We didn't it. watch that one. We watched the one um, with uh, Colton. That's like the only one I remember, this super obnoxious kid, and then he got appendicitis <laughs> and got taken out. It was so good. Yeah, he didn't yeah. Last. He didn't no, last. yeah. Um, we were super Troyzan. We were very pro Troyzan. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, but we, I can't believe that the, the I mean, I, it's incredible that the women all banded together and followed each other through till the end, but like, I was shocked that, um, 
Christina made it to top three or some one of them made it to top three. It was crazy. But I think that's totally something that well, that's that's like a psychological fishbowl mm-hmm. because you put these these people together. Yeah. Right? And I mean, certainly it's not really, truly like Lord of the Flies where they're, yeah. not, they're not imperiled to the point where they might die. Yeah. But, you know, you do see mm-hmm. the interplay between these different people's psychologies. Yeah. And so it is yeah. like looking at the fishbowl mm-hmm. and being able to watch all these things play out. I, that's yeah. why I like it. Yeah. I t- like that's, that's that people like studying thing in me, too, yeah. that makes me want to like overanalyze and think about it. Like we've watched probably every season of Jersey Shore. And I just I'm so like fascinated <laughs> with these like people that are I'm just like, how? Did you end up on this show? Like the situation with yeah. all those folks, right? Mm-hmm. I think the situation is my favorite, even though he's like the worst one. I just think he's <laughs> so off the handle, and nobody does anything about it. And that's what's crazy to me is he'll like punch a hole in the wall and then like get a concussion, and they're worried about him. Yeah. And it's like I guess they they might be like trauma bonded with each other from being on that show. <laughs> like yeah, I don't know. I think they don't. A lot of times people don't do something because they're yeah. you know, we as a species tend to be conflict avoidant. Mm-hmm. And conflict might even mean yeah that we tap into something that's like uh, referred to as rejection sensitivity. Yeah, a very big category. Mm-hmm. But like we don't want to approach yeah like the situation. Scary and, guy. And talk to him about what we're concerned about mm-hmm. because we might upset him, right? Yeah. And we, you know, we tend to, mm. statistically anyway, we tend to be individuals that don't like to upset each other. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, Mike can go do his things. Mm-hmm. And maybe the camera will pick up people talking amongst themselves and saying how they're concerned. Yeah. But they won't approach him. Mm-mm. It's a like it's a like a lot of families, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And just keeping that homeostasis. Yeah. Uh-huh. Very mm-hmm. well done. Yeah. Very well done. Yeah. Yeah, maintaining homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Keyword. Containing <laughs> homeostasis. Um, I do. I To wrap the interview up, I like to ask all of my guests this because I like – kind of seeing how the answers align with each other. Yeah. Um, if you had the attention of the world for five minutes, what would you ask? What would I ask? Or what would you, whoops, sorry, I was so distracted by the thing. I thought it got, I always think it cancels it out. That's okay. Um, yeah. If you had the whole attention of the world for five minutes, what would you tell them? Excuse me. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think. I you don't have to I owe the world yeah, I anything. Yeah, I maneuvered it that I wasn't going to ask mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Um, I, I think I would probably organize something very quickly where I could say we can do better. Yes. Right. We mm-hmm. can do better. And, you know, that's part of the, the dilemma for psychology where mm-hmm. we do have a lot of knowledge about how we can do better. Yes. Whether it's within families mm-hmm. or whether it's within friends mm-hmm. or whether it's, you know, in any kind of you know, sort of relational dynamic, whether it's politically, economically, what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do better because totally. we've got this remarkably, you know, uh, advanced frontal lobe. And we don't do very well Yeah. In, when it comes to being able to organize ourselves and then have a promising future. It's the opposite, right? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's the opposite. So... Yeah, we could do better, um, and so I would. It would be wonderful if we could have something of a manual of 
you know, just sort of small chapters of, you know, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that you can do or be mindful of as an individual. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think I would try to really encourage people to be thinking about how we could do better, especially the yeah. idea of starting off with not sort of uh, cautious, uh, indignant, fear responses, however we want to organize yeah. them, but just com- compassion mindsets. Yeah, I, yeah, I 100% agree. I think I honestly really appreciate that answer answer because like all of the other podcasts I have is like use empathy and be empathetic towards other people. But I think with that compassion, it kind of makes that so much stronger. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think empathy is something that we have, you know, built into our physiology. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea of compassion, though, is something that we can cultivate. Totally. There's a, there's a cognitive component to that mm-hmm. where even in Buddhism, they refer to it as cultivating compassion. Yeah. You know, and it really does require us to take some of our belief systems mm-hmm. and even having some understanding about our tendencies as, as human beings mm-hmm. and then keep a check on it and mm-hmm. then think, okay, what do I want to do? How do I want to do differently? Yeah. And then make that a practice. And that's going to be the key. Well, thank you so much for taking thanks, the time Soph. out of your day. Yeah, and thanks so much. Of course, don't be a stranger. Yeah, That's it was cool. fun being uh, being back on the radio microphone since 1981. So. You are always welcome back. <laughs> Please, even when you're on podcast. But yeah, thank yeah, you so much. Great, thanks.